Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi there. It's good to be back behind the mic after a mix of health, family and work crises all hit at once. It meant I couldn't do an episode in June and my social media presence has been very quiet. Hopefully things are on the up now and we can push on with our journey. I'd especially like to thank new patrons, James, and also Sean at the American History Podcast for their support. Here we are then, back in the United Kingdom, after a long journey with Charles Darwin on the HMS Beagle, and a celebration of the sixth anniversary of the podcast. What next, you ask? We are standing at the beginning of the 1840s. We've come a long way since we started our journey together and since our last recap. Here is a good moment to quickly zoom out and take a God's eye view from Olympus of everything the show has covered and where it has brought us. Since our last recap, Queen Victoria was born in 1819. She grew up at the tail end of the Georgian era in the aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo and the Peterloo Massacre. It was the dying of the Age of Enlightenment and Revolutions, the fragile, ossified political order that struggled to keep a repressive grip on the working class of Britain, supported by the vast wealth generated by trade, industry and slavery overseas, was being challenged as Victoria grew. She survived an abusive childhood and, despite the efforts of Sir John Conroy and her mother, she would become an independent young queen. The army decided that the template for beating Napoleon could naturally apply to all future wars and so looked to formalise the grand Napoleonic style, even as colonial campaigners demanded new styles of military troops, tactics and innovation. Imperial Britain began to piece its empire back together after the disaster of the American Revolution and the long years of the Napoleonic Wars, expanding into the Australias and South Africa. These colonial possessions were tied to royal naval bases and trade routes, opening up parts of the world to British trade on an increasingly vast scale. In the UK, political reform moved slowly, with the franchise expanding by the tiniest amount. Most British people lived in grinding poverty, and the country began to rapidly industrialise. Life remained precarious, and the poorest died unnoticed. In the workhouses, mines and gutters of the urban slums, far from being a time of backward conservatism, the Victorian era was a time of rapid change, and significant reforms, but done in the traditional, incremental, haphazard British way. The government focused on laissez-faire capitalism, and many pessimists held on to a Malthusian outlook, with the strong belief that there would always be more poor people than could ever be fed. So mass population die-offs were considered a law of nature, as immutable as a law of physics. Famine was nature's way of restoring the balance, Malthusians thought, 
There were glimmers of optimism too. New science and engineering were creating practical solutions to real-world problems. Railways began to improve journeys and allow heavy goods and fresh goods to move more easily by land. The steam engine boosted productivity, whilst capital from the landed aristocracy was mixed with the wealth of the slave trade, but also the trade in manufactured goods. People began to wonder if wealth perhaps wasn't a zero-sum game after all. Pre-Victorian Britain was a country where travel could be hard, and taking a ship round the coast might be faster than the overland routes, thanks to the army of navvies working in horrific conditions Britain built railways, carved through the landscape, to build new bridges and viaducts. The railways moved heavy goods, then people, at speeds and distances no one believed possible before. Food could be moved in bulk, and, when it was much fresher, allowing increased urban growth. We've also talked about the introduction of the postal service, the rise of the Metropolitan Detective and the beginnings of standardised mass education. Modern journalism was beginning and Dickens had started his journey to literary legend. Other great authors like Elizabeth Gaskill raged against poverty and inequality. The Navy and anti-slavery sentiment combined to begin forcing the world to take abolitionism seriously. Whether the rest of the world liked it or not, the British began to crush slavery at gunpoint. Parliament was forced to buy out slave owners in places just to get the anti-slavery legislation on the books. Great slave states like Brazil or the slave economies of the West African coastal kingdoms had to deal with the sudden turn of Britain from linchpin of the Atlantic trade to fanatical opponent and almost religious crusaders. The Royal Navy led a semi-religious crusade against slavery, willing to challenge even the immense power of the United States, Brazil and the African slave-trading kings to end the trade. Science began to make great leaps in material and chemical fields, plus mathematics, geology and biology. We've covered all this in detail, so you can see how the United Kingdom transitioned from pre-industrial agrarian Georgian world to an industrialising Victorian society. As I've said before, the Victorian era only looks conservative in hindsight. In fact, it was a time of radical change and increasing social liberalism in many areas. It was also the start of the age of statistics, evidence and categorisation the birth of local municipal authorities, police forces, scientific societies and many of the precursors of modern organised society. At the top of society, the young princess had become Queen Victoria, then married the dashing and brilliant Prince Albert. Political stability was combined with a new sense of political optimism as Albert began to push a view of progress and modernity. The monarchy tried to move 
to a more public appearance of political neutrality. The days of the party of the Crown ruling in Parliament were replaced with Her Majesty's government and Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Political reform suddenly became possible in new ways. Politically, it was also the dying point of the older style of political establishment. The old, boozy, corrupt world of Georgian politics was going to be transformed during the Victorian era. Lord Melbourne was soon on his way out, and the political titan Sir Robert Peel was on his way in, very much to Victoria's initial distaste. Her 1840 diary was filled with dancing, going to plays, listening to concerts, attending the opera, dropping in on grand country estates of the nobility, playing piano with Albert, walks, and the general lavish lifestyle of luxury of the aristocratic class of Europe, almost unchanged from the early 1700s. There are mentions in her diary of dying aunts and friends, of political drama in Parliament, of changes to taxes, conflicts, and Irish voting issues. Of course, like any royal, she and Albert had that great royal duty to complete, having sex and making babies, and providing an heir. Luckily for everyone, Victoria was actually in love with her husband, enjoyed sex with him, had a high sex drive, and would have nine children, all of whom survived to adulthood. Six of them would be born in the 1840s. In 1837, at the age of 18, she ascended to the throne, following the death of her uncle, King William IV. Within four years, she married. On February 10, 1840, she didn't want to get pregnant straight away. It was a wifely and queenly duty at the time, but who can blame her for being scared to have a child when she was only 21, with high mortality rates in childbirth, little in the way of painkilling, and no effective contraception. It's not exactly a feminist position either, being only valued for making heirs to the throne. Then without contraception, if a woman wanted sex, pregnancy was the risk for most of human history until the 1960s. That meant, as Sod's Law would have it, Victoria realised she was pregnant six weeks after her wedding. Naturally, Albert was excited, both personally, but also as it chimed with his aim for a Germanic Britain. To quote biographer Richard Hugh, quote, his ambition to bring out first an understanding, later an alliance between Britain and Germany, when he left Germany, Albert declared before his family he would remain a loyal German, Coburg and Gothener. Although destined to live in Britain and to accept British nationality, he was determined to remain a German in spirit, and the destiny of Germany was always close to his heart. Albert's ambition, however far distant it might seem, was to create a German bloc made up of Germany, Britain, Belgium and Denmark at the northern end, and Switzerland in the south. This was to be formed in self-protection against the military despotism and red republicanism of Russia and France, end quote. I've said before that Britain 
naturally, culturally, sits much more comfortably with Germany than nearly any other country on earth. You can see how a half-German, half-English prince or princess will be an enormous help for Albert's project. In fact, a whole selection of them would be ideal. There wouldn't be the formal announcement in early pregnancy, but people already knew, as the Queen noted in her diary on Friday 24th of April 1840, quote, went with dear Albert and several of the ladies and gentlemen, including Lord Errol and Lord Uxbridge, over the plate rooms and china rooms, also to the kitchen. Albert has been to see Lord Melbourne and talked to him about levees and drawing rooms, as I cannot stand any longer. He said I had better have them, and he seated. He told Albert that there would be no formal announcement of my being in an interesting condition, as is customary abroad, but that it was understood and known. End quote. Anticipation of an heir to the throne heightened expectations and brought immense joy to the royal family and the British public. Pregnancy also marked an important milestone in Victoria's personal life as she had to embrace her role as a queen and a mother. Having an heir and later a spare at least guaranteed there would be no future arguments about succession. Having two legitimate princesses and princes in a few years meant that there would be no undignified scrambling in Parliament or worries about distant cousins making claim and counterclaim. Well, when I say embracing her new impending role, what I mean is she had a real hissy fit. She really didn't want to be pregnant so soon, as she bluntly wrote to her grandmother-in-law. Quote, My prayers have not been answered, and I am really most unhappy. I cannot understand how anyone would wish for such a thing, especially at the beginning of marriage. End quote. She was just warming up. To Uncle Leopold, the King of the Belgians, she wrote, quote, The thing is odious, and if all one's plagues are rewarded by a nasty girl, I shall drown it, I think. I will know nothing else but a boy. I will never have a girl. End quote. Not her finest, kindest hour. In 1840, there was an unrelated assassination attempt on her. This hardly helped a stress-free pregnancy. She was pleased with Albert's protective reaction. Quote, At six, we drove out in our drotska, as usual, and, as we had just left the palace, about halfway up the road, before Constitution Hill, I was deafened by the loud report of a pistol, and our carriage involuntarily stopped. Albert was sitting on my right. We looked and saw a little man on the footpath, with his arms folded over his breast, a pistol in each hand, and before half a minute had elapsed, I saw him aim at me with another pistol. I ducked my head, and another shot, equally loud, instantly followed. We looked around, and saw the man had been quickly surrounded and seized. Albert directly ordered the postillion 
to drive on as if nothing had happened to Mamma's house, just before the second shot was fired, and as the man took aim, or rather more while he fired, dear Albert turned to me, squeezing my hand, exclaiming, My God, don't be alarmed. I assured him I was not in the least frightened, which was the case. It never entered my head, nor did it his, after the first pistol shot, that it was meant for me. End quote. As always, her enormous ego was ruling the day. Albert had courageously acted as a human shield, which improved his general popularity and earned him yet more idolisation from Victoria. The would-be assassin was found to be insane and was sent to an asylum before being banished from England on release. It was important that Victoria provided the political stability just of being alive and producing an heir, since Britain was in a political and imperial transition. Death from an assassin's blade or in childbirth would both have disastrous results. As I've said in previous shows, the imperial outposts in the Australian and South African regions were growing fast, and the first opium war had started in China in late 1839 and would really pick up steam in the mid-1840s. Canada was a growing and complex territory, whilst the first Anglo-Afghan war was in full swing, and the situation across the Indian subcontinent was extremely complicated and violent. The real crisis point in 1840 was called the Ottoman Crisis, and was really caused by the brilliant Ottoman governor of Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha, attempting to turn the country into his own personal empire. He was rapidly modernising the armed forces, and he was a clever general and politician. As the price of his support of the Ottoman Empire in the Greek War of Independence, he was promised Syria. When his Ottoman overlords failed to make good on her promise, he seized it, triggering a war that was eventually settled diplomatically, with all the great powers of Europe frantically trying to avoid anyone getting the upper hand in the situation. The Ottoman Empire was struggling to re-establish control, not helped when their navy effectively defected to Ali Pasha. An international convention was held in Europe to try and get Ali Pasha to at least nominally agree to be part of the Ottoman Empire and cease his de facto rebellion. Not because the European powers particularly liked the Ottomans, but they were desperately worried about the possible collapse of an ancient, powerful, but bitterly divided empire right on their eastern borders. The European powers offered to recognise Ali Pasha's lifelong right to control the port of Acre in Syria as long as he withdrew from the rest of the country. Unfortunately, the French saw the opportunity to use the Egyptian situation to show up their conquest of Algiers and offered Ali Pasha diplomatic support, urging him to reject the international convention. They even supplied naval support. Control of the Mediterranean was vital and all the great powers were fixated on not letting full control fall to any power and destabilise the region, potentially 
triggering a European war. You can see the foreshadows of World War I in these situations. Britain feared Russia getting control of the eastern Mediterranean and using it to support an invasion of India. France feared Britain closing off the North Atlantic coast. Britain feared France destabilising the western Mediterranean and threatening an invasion of Britain. The Balkans feared Russian invasions. Worse, France was highly unstable politically. It had just recently seen off an attempted invasion by Louis Napoleon, nephew of the great Napoleon Bonaparte. French Prime Minister Thiers was almost willing to go to war with Britain over the Egyptian issue, and Lord Palmerston, the Foreign Secretary, was always keen for a dust-up with anyone. The Queen and Lord Melbourne were constantly exchanging letters about it, and the Queen was using her royal influence at home to try and prevent a war. Her grasp of the political situation was incredibly astute, especially when you think that she was only 21, as illustrated in her detailed letter to Lord Palmerston on the 11th of November, 1840. Quote, The Queen has to acknowledge the receipt of Lord Palmerston's letter of this morning, which she has read with great attention. The Queen will just make a few observations upon the various points in it to which she would wish to draw Lord Palmerston's attention. The Queen does so with strict impartiality, having had ample opportunities of hearing both sides of this intricate and highly important question. First of all, it strikes the Queen that even if Monsieur Thiers did raise the cry, which was so loud for war in France, but which the Queen cannot believe he did, to the extent that Lord Palmerston does, that such an excitement, once raised in a country like France, where the people are more excitable than almost any other nation, it cannot be so easily controlled and stopped again. And the Queen thinks this will be seen in time. Secondly, the Queen cannot quite agree in Lord Palmerston's observation that the French government state the danger of internal revolution if not supported merely to extract further concessions from Mohammed Ali. The Queen does not pretend to say that this danger is not exaggerated, but depend upon it, a certain degree of danger does exist, and that the situation of the King of France and the present French government is not an easy one. The majority, too, cannot be depended upon, as many would vote against Odilier Barreau, who would not vote on other occasions with the Sous-Joyeux Ministry. Thirdly, the danger of war is also doubtless greatly exaggerated, as also the numbers of French troops. But Lord Palmerston must recollect how very warlike the French are, and that if once roused, they will not listen to the calming reason of those who wish for peace, or think of the great risk they run of losing by war, but only of glory and revenging insult, as they call it. Fourthly, the Queen sees the difficulty there exists at the present moment of making any specific offer to France. But she must at the same time repeat how highly 
and exceedingly important she considers it, that some sort of conciliatory agreement should be come to with France, for she cannot believe that any appeals made to her by the King of the French are only exertions of skilful diplomacy. The Queen's earnest and only wish is peace, and a maintenance of friendly relations with her allies, consistent with the honour and dignity of her country. If she does not think, however, that the last would be compromised by attempts to soften the irritation still existing in France, or by attempts to bring France back to her former position in the Oriental question, she earnestly hopes that Lord Palmerston will consider this, will reflect upon the importance of not driving France to extremities, and of conciliatory measures without showing fear, for our successes on the coast of Syria show our power, or without yielding to threats. France has been humbled, and France is in the wrong, but therefore it is easier than if we had failed to do something to bring matters righted to again. The Queen has thus frankly stated her own opinion, which she thought it right Lord Palmerston should know, and she is sure he will see it is only dictated by an earnest desire to see all as much united as possible on this important subject. End quote. Having the Queen and heir die in childbirth at this point would have been a disaster, and would have diverted British government attention away from the various important events it was trying to manage. Keeping Lord Palmerston in check was not easy. Ministers used to have a lot more power than they do today, so it was entirely possible for him to drag an unwilling government into a European war against France. That might also have dragged in Algeria, Syria, Egypt, the Ottoman Empire, the Balkans, Greece and Russia. Or it might have left France isolated and at risk of invasion by Britain and a coalition, especially if a Republican revolution occurred. France backed down slowly over the summer. An Allied fleet of British, Austrian and Ottoman Imperial forces conducted an efficient and daring campaign in Syria, which Victoria mentioned in her letter. The problem all nations contesting British influence in the Mediterranean and other coastal areas faced was that the Royal Navy was the supreme fighting force on earth, already maintaining more power than at least two of her peers combined. The campaign showed glimpses of the future, the use of propellers, iron armour and paddle steamers. HMS Stromboli, a paddle steamer, was only commissioned in July 1840, and by November 1840 she had her first battle honour from the bombardment of Acre. Her appearance heralded an enormous change in naval warfare. No longer were wind and oars the only way to power a ship. Now, if the wind dropped, human muscle was no longer needed. The tireless power of coal and steam combined with paddles and propellers meant that the Royal Navy would operate in ways it had never dreamed of before. The actual campaign was a quick and efficient one, 
According to medal expert Peter Deckers, quote, Initially, ships of the British Mediterranean fleet, supported by Austrian and Turkish warships, took part in a number of active operations, blockading the Nile Delta, operating against Egyptian-held ports like Sidon, shelling Beirut on the 11th of September 1840, and then attacking Acre itself. In the autumn of 1840, Acre, attacked before by the British in 1189 and 1799, was being watched by HMS Vesuvius, Phoenix, Stromboli and Gorgon, but the squadron was rapidly reinforced in October to a strength of 12 ships mounting 702 guns under Sir Robert Stropford and by four Turkish and two Austrian warships. It was estimated that the Egyptians had a garrison of only 4,500 infantry and 800 cavalry, along with warships riding at anchor. When the decision to attack the port was made on the 3rd of November, part of the Allied fleet, the HMS Benbow, Edinburgh, Castor, Carisfort, Talbot, Wasp and Hazard, with the Austrian and Turkish ships, would bombard the port from the south of the bay and destroy its fortifications. Others, HMS Princess Charlotte, the flagship, HMS Powerful, Thunderer, Bellerophon and Peak, would attack from the north. Their target would be the western defences and the citadel at Acre, later to be crudely depicted on the Turkish medal. Other ships, like HMS Revenge, were initially, to their disgust, kept in reserve. All was carried out smoothly and effectively. The southern squadron was the first to come into range and receive enemy fire from the port defences, but soon the entire Allied fleet was anchored in set positions and poured a tremendous fire into the town. The Egyptians, especially in one battery, served their guns bravely, though to little effect. The British fleet suffered only 59 casualties, most of them light and superficial structural damage. At 4pm, after two hours of solid bombardment, the main magazine at Aco blew up, causing terrible casualties amongst the garrison, though not ending the defence. The pounding continued until after dusk, then sporadically into the night, before the Allied fleet withdrew in the darkness. In the meantime, the governor and the garrison abandoned the town, and the next day, surviving Egyptian officers offered their surrender. End quote. Egyptian national surrender soon followed. The defeated Ali Pasha was allowed to keep hereditary rule of Egypt after renouncing his claim to Crete and Syria. He had secured independence from the Ottoman Empire and got his rule recognised by all the great powers of Europe, who frankly counted for a lot more. If war is the continuation of politics by other means, then the reverse is also true, namely that politics is the ending of war. In this case, Ali Pasha had gained almost as much as if he had won the war. The Turkish Sultan, Mahmud II, generously offered to give campaign medals to the Royal Navy. Since the British didn't issue medals at this point, with the exception of the Battle of Waterloo, this was greeted with immense excitement. Disappointment followed, 
When it was found, the medals were tiny and poor quality. Most were in copper, and a large number of ships didn't get them, as they were deemed not to have been in sufficient parts of the action. Eventually, the British government decided to issue the first real and proper military campaign medal, the Naval General Service Medal, NGSM, of 1847. It was issued in 1849, and any Royal Naval personnel could claim a clasp for a recognised action in any campaign between 1793 up to 1840. Obviously, some clasps would be more coveted than others. A small ship action against a privateer was one thing, but a man who could point to the clasp on his ribbon that said Trafalgar was a man that had been through hell afloat and lived to tell the tale. Most importantly, the medal set the tone. Victoria was on a grand silver medal of her, her navy, her army, her image. This was tricky, considering the constitutional settlement in the United Kingdom strictly forbade the monarch from controlling the army and put it firmly under the command of Parliament. But Victoria would learn to be clever in associating her image with the military. She insisted on signing commissions long after her health was gone in old age. She and Albert were deeply interested in the military and wanted a strong royal association, even whilst they accepted the days of royals having legal military command of the whole armed forces were gone. All in all, though, it was a good pregnancy for Victoria. She remained healthy, was deeply in love with her husband, and there were no real domestic crises to deal with. As she noted on her birthday, quote, A beautiful bright sun was shining when I awoke, and dearest Albert greeted me most lovingly and wished me joy of the day. I told him I could wish for nothing more than to be as happy as I am with him. He bought me his dear gifts, among which a beautiful brooch, a large single turquoise set in diamonds with earrings to correspond, and a very fine bronze-chased inkstand. End quote. Even late in the pregnancy, Victoria was in a positive mood. She wrote in her journal, quote, We walked out at ten for half an hour. Then Albert set off to go shooting, rested, signed, and sat to Partridge. Mama, who had just arrived and stays till the twentieth, lunched with us in the white drawing room. Albert drove me out from four till five. It is a year today that he and Ernest arrived here last year, and we talked about it was driving, of how my different situation was then, to what it is now, and how little I thought when I received him on the staircase that evening and beheld those dear, beautiful eyes which seemed to go to my soul then, that I should not only be his wife, but in the eighth month of my pregnancy, on this same day this year. I was happy on that day when I saw him, but now far happier am I. Received two letters from Lord Melbourne, with more quieting news, but not written since the cabinet took place. 
rested, wrote letters and read dispatches. We went to hear the beautiful organ again. The only additions to dinner were Mama and Lady Charlotte. Dr. Elvie played on the organ afterward and we stayed up till 11pm. End quote. Victoria was having a much more supported pregnancy than a working class Victorian woman who might well have been working at physical labour right up to the moment her labour started. Elmer was taking a bigger and bigger role supporting her royal work. But Victoria tried to keep working till almost the last minute. The questions at the time were really whether she could survive childbirth, would she have a boy, and how would the heir and any siblings be raised. For us history fans, her family were incredibly important to European history through quirks of marriage, fate, and Victoria's possession of the gene for haemophilia. It is fair to say that her children and grandchildren were key causes of the First World War. Not to blame them, but they had enormous impacts, especially in Russia, Austria, Hungary and Germany. The birth was actually three weeks premature. Contractions began at 3am in the morning on the 21st of November and labour passed quickly. It was an awkward affair and slightly unusual by modern standards and even Victorian ones. Albert remained with her the whole time, breaking the usual custom of the husband not being present. There was also a doctor and midwife. Victoria had to give birth almost publicly, since dear Lord M, Lord Errol, a bishop and an archbishop, stood in the next room listening in. She had survived and delivered a baby. Famously, when the doctor presented her with her daughter, saying, quote, Oh, madam, it is a princess, she replied, quote, Never mind, the next one will be a prince. End quote. Unsurprisingly, there has been a lot of pop culture analysis of this, and whether it meant Victoria was callous and it was a sign of her being a distant mother, especially as she later referred to young babies as looking like frogs. That's certainly one way of reading it. Another is that this is a bit of either a home myth or of bonhomie from a mother who had just been through labour and is making a wisecrack in stressful circumstances. You need to be careful about the idea that Victoria was uncaring for her children. Some of her letters were later edited or burnt, and there was often a selection bias against her letters. Other women talking about breastfeeding and domestic motherhood because the male-centric court and male-centric historians viewed events from a male point of view when judging the importance of documents. Some of Victoria's letters from her later life talk about the suffering of pregnancy and childbirth. That's not the same as saying she didn't love her children. Multiple pregnancies did have a serious impact on her health and her body suffered. The next thing to remember is that Victoria had had an horrific childhood with an abusive, controlling mother, so had no real positive maternal example to guide her. Being a mother doesn't automatically make someone good with children. The next thing to remember is that Victoria and Albert were both 
heavily involved with the children, probably too much. Too much discipline and control can be as bad as too little. Victoria often talks of playing with her children and enjoying Albert and his time with them. Also, Victoria was the queen, and for some reason, everyone seems to think that raising royal children needs a weird special isolation for them instead of normal child-rearing, which is why so many princes and princesses turn out to be so bloody odd. It was clear to everyone, though, that Albert was the more natural and affectionate parent, often dancing with the little girl and swinging her up in the air to make her giggle. Victoria made frequent early references to loving her daughter, whom she nicknamed Pussy. When the little princess was 18 months old, Victoria said she was, quote, quite a little toy for us, and a great pet, always smiling so sweetly when we played with her, end quote. In 1842, the new governess, Lady Lytton, remarked that Victoria was constantly involved with the little princess and was with her nearly all the time. Not that Victoria was keen on more children yet. She had only just got through the first birth and pointedly informed Uncle Leopold that she wasn't going to be a broodmare to create a huge royal family. But she just couldn't resist a romp with Albert and was pregnant just three months after giving birth to her first child. Victoria didn't breastfeed, so even that imperfect form of contraception was missed. And worse still, Victorian medical advice was that women were at their least fertile when ovulating, and therefore that was the best time to have sex if they wanted to avoid pregnancy. Other than the rhythm method, there were few other options available. The other forms of contraception were either ineffective or religiously unacceptable. She did not take this news well. Albert was delighted. Even better from his point of view, he had proved he could do the core royal duty of fathering heirs well, and his social position was completely secure. His political position improved leaps and bounds. With Victoria needing help during pregnancies, Albert took on a huge amount of political responsibility. With Victoria's semi-reluctant blessing, he was becoming highly respected by the political people that really mattered. He was effectively the Queen's personal private secretary and had access to political papers of the highest level. He would soon become seen as the most critical political figure in the country, albeit of a low-key political operator. He would shortly be instrumental in some crucial reforms and negotiate the arrival of the early Victorian political titan, Sir Robert Peel. Next time, we will start to look at the beginning of the decades of Albert, reform at Buckingham Palace and the removal of the last two obstacles from Albert's path to power, Lord Palmerston and Baroness Lazen. Yep, dear Lord M., is going to exit stage left, and Victoria's devoted childhood governess was going to be removed from the picture too. Okay, thank you for listening. Just briefly on the social media side of things, I have stepped back uh, during the various crises I've been navigating, but I am still available reading all messages, 
and we'll hopefully be back online again in depth soon. The Facebook group I particularly enjoy, and I know that there is quite a lot of Victorian material, not just from me, that gets posted on there. So if you have interesting family stories, if you have photos of the Victorian era, if you have a Victorian-related podcast episode, do feel free to post. And if you're a new listener, have a look in the group. See what you can find. There's lots of great material on there. And there's also the website. I'm not sure what the future holds for the website formerly known as Twitter. I assume Elon Musk will keep it running for a few more months. <laughs> but what the future holds, who can tell? For now, you can still reach me on Twitter as well as the email, the website and all of the rest. And I'm also hoping to have a guest interview, our, perhaps our first one ever, on a fascinating topic. In fact, I have one or two lined up. So watch this space. As always, the future of the podcast is onwards and upwards. OK, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.